0: Good morning, Mike. Hey, Carl. I'm doing good. I'm glad that we are connected. Um, usually, what I do in a life and biography is ask the guest to introduce himself, and I will let you do that in a second. But I just wanted to um, read the list of titles that's in your book, Mailer's Last Days, uh, to indicate you know all the work you've been doing on Mailer over decades. So we have Norman Mailer, the 60s, Norman Mailer, Works and Days, Selected Letters of Norman Mailer, Norman Mailer, A Double Life, On God, An Uncommon Conversation with Norman Mailer, The Spooky Art by Norman Mailer, Conversations with Norman Mailer, Critical Essays on Norman Mailer, Pieces and potifications by Norman Mailer, many of these books you've edited, of course, as well as doing the biography. So um, before we talk specifically about Mailer's last days and how you got to uh, what your subtitle is, New and Selected Remembrances of a Life in Literature, uh, maybe you should tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, about why uh, Norman Mailer is important, and don't forget the part about being an altar boy.
1: Well, a bit about myself. Well, um, I've, I've been an academic uh, for most of my life, uh, back from the time. Five years in the U.S. Navy on active duty. I got out in 19... I've been, been in an a, academic career ever since. Uh, I have taught at uh, a few... Uh, uh, for the last... Oh, I guess 30 years now. I've been at Wilkes University in wilkes Pennsylvania. It's a private small private, non-denominational. And, and um, I was, was the provost it, there for ten years, here. and then uh, I had uh, career working on Norman Mailer. May- May- I started working on Mailer May- when I wrote my dissertation on him back uh, in 1975. 1975. And my focus in that was lost, and, and that, that is why, Norman Miller turned from being a novelist uh, into a nonfiction writer. Uh, I mean, it's not that he ever stopped being a novelist. He certainly didn't. Uh, but quite as many nonfiction books, half times as many fiction books. And uh, that's even though he always wanted to be known as a novelist, it's possible that his career, when it looked at with a is going to be seen as he's going to be seen as ambidextrous both a fiction writer and a novelist on uh, non-fiction uh, writer and a novelist um, it may be that non-fiction is precede his fiction as far as memorability as far as the impact it's had on and um, that's what I focused on a lot in in my in writing about Mailer is that the shift in nonfiction, why did he do it, how did he do it, and so on. And then at a certain point, uh, after Between the letters the edition, and editing, uh, uh, big books, Toshin, picture books of Mailer's works, um, I decided I wanted to write more about how Mailer personally. personally. I've been asked that question so many times. And I, I thought, thought I wanted, wanted to do it. And I realized that I really couldn't dissever my involvement with Mela with, with my own uh, family life, uh, largely because uh, I was there was a good deal of distance between my, my father, father and myself. Going back to the... Uh, uh, after World War II, uh, I was born during World War II uh, in 1942. It wasn't that we were... Uh, agonistic toward each other so much as there was just a silence, a zone of, of uh, lack of interest between us. Uh, I think I turned to other uh, people only, and older older mentors for a long time before I really realized that my father, for whatever reasons, uh, was more interested in my siblings than myself and in many ways. And Mailer mentors mentors. Um, Maylor really supplanted him in many ways. Conscious before I consciously realized it. I mean, I never really thought about it in an active way. And then at a certain point, I just couldn't resist it anymore. And I realized that I looked upon Mailer as being a father figure. Discovery I dug through old records and photographs of, of some records about my grandfather. Let Write uh, Mailer's Last Days, which is a collection of memoirs and uh, literary essays that I think are braided together, not, not too loosely, but they're braided together. They go, um, I guess, one of the earliest pieces is when he comes home from the war. And then up through uh, my early life when I was an altar boy altar boy for a long time in the catholic church uh for a good eight years um i had to it after it i said that i <laughs> me, me to come back i said look i'm past. i'm a young adult you don't want to be an altar boy anymore it marked me as well and and really some of the priests that um I was associated with when I when I was an altar boy they themselves became mentor figures with me father O'Neill was someone that I knew for 40 or 50 years and included. so I had a long relationship uh with Catholic kind of a laps- I am a lapse kid I have a, a lot of uh, fun memory
0: but you know Mike if someone um Someone was looking for a biography, biography, biographer of Norman Mailer. The first thing they would not think of is, "Oh, let's get an altar boy." <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's 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 quite a journey uh, that that you've gone through. Um, a couple things I wanted to say about Mailer, and and uh, uh, you, you can uh, certainly give your own view of this. He strikes me. Um, as an extraordinarily courageous person uh, and writer. And by that, I mean, he put himself on the line uh, in his physical participation in things like protests, yes, but just as a writer, it's one thing to write novels, uh, say the way Don DeLillo writes novels. It's another thing, and people thought of this as just his ego, you know, that uh, male chauvinism and all that sort of thing. But there's a whole other aspect to it, which is to be out there um, as a writer, the way in a sense politicians are, and, and to have your piece to say on, you know, important national events like the Vietnam War. Yeah, lots of writers protested, you know, poets like Robert Bull protested, but to put that in a book, which also centers on yourself, um it just strikes me as as remarkable unique
1: uh yeah uh i think the armies of the night is the great uh, is the mountain in the mail in the norman male canon i mean there are many other subsidiary peaks as there are in the himalaya in the himalayas that are close but that's either whatever the tallest one is i guess kate the armies, armies of the night three. yeah because Mailer, and uh, he did it in such a uh, rapid fashion, he didn't want to get involved in the March on the Pentagon. He had almost, he was, he was in the middle of doing something else. He was making movies. And that was his passion. He loved making movies. I don't think he was great at it, or, or really even very good at it. Uh, but he believed in it very much. He wanted to make his mark as something else besides writing novels. And then he got the. And he really opposed that. It was destroying American democracy. It was destroying, it had the potential to destroy the nuclear holocaust. And so he was. And so finally, grudgingly, he got involved in that, the Pentagon. And. Um, did sort of do it. This is the duty. It's my duty. I gotta get on there in the line, turn in my draft card, make a few speeches, uh, and come back. And um he did, but as soon as he got on the train going back, he began thinking of it as, you know, his novelist or his his mind began to work like how can I do it? and really having been a novelist and published a half a dozen novels then, he um Himself as a character. To think of himself, himself as who someone who needed to be observed down from a distance. Down and, and he had something like the next eight weeks uh, that was about, um, oh, I guess, six, seventy, eighty thousand 70, 80,000 words long, 80 or 90,000 words long on that remarkable march on the Pentagon, which was one of the big events in turning the nation against the Vietnam War. And when he started writing that book, he felt um, he was at ease. He he said, this doesn't sound right, talking about yourself as if you're another person. But he said after a while, he got over that distaste, and it it just ran like a river after that. And indeed, it ran so well that the next uh, seven books that he wrote, seven or eight books, were written uh, in the third personal, which is formerly known as Iliad. You know, which is writing yep. about yourself in the third person, which goes. Caesar, Gertrude Stein and a lot of other people, Henry Adams, I think, was a key influence on male because I Henry...
0: yeah.
1: education in the third person.
0: I was about to mention Henry Adams, and it's so interesting because uh, Adams does t- treat himself in the third person. And Adams was a historian, a very important historian. Uh, And then here Mailer comes along uh, and deals with historical narrative. History is a novel. The novel is history. So the book becomes certainly about the March on the Pentagon, about politics and about Mailer himself. But it's it deserves its place because he is writing within a tradition that at the time people probably weren't all that aware of. There's one other thing about that book um, that taught me a lot. Uh, which was Mailer talks about himself as a World War II veteran and how uncomfortable it is for him, you know, to, to march, to protest, that this is a different generation, this is a different way of looking at things. Reminds me of E.L. Doctorow, Book of Daniel, where he talks about mm-hmm. the, the difference in the, the radicals in the 30s as opposed to the radicals in the 60s. And Mailer nails all of that.
1: Yes, he does he does i mean that core identity was world war 2 he came of age in world war 2 uh, it was uh, he was only a, a, in the some, 5 months but it really changed his life he grew up he became a man he went in a he was in combat and he was very proud of it very proud of his identity one year I gave him uh, for a Christmas present. He was notoriously difficult to buy presents for. He just he scorned them you know don't buy me a tie, a scarf i' I don't want any of that junk. <laughs> a, a combat infantryman's badge because I knew we lost it. Never seen it around. He, he looked, looked at he said, him. you know what this is He said, you don't they don't give these away. I've been in combat to get one of these. And he said, I, I don't, I'm, I'm really glad you gave me this. And it was the only time I ever gave a present, except sometimes a book, uh, um, that he showed any interest in whatsoever. Uh, that he was very proud of it. So when he got into the, in the march, there he, he was again in a group activity, marching with a lot of other people. for the first time he ever marched, yeah. you know, for many, many years. Marching again, and of course, there are a lot of veterans at that time who were against the archers. There were a lot of people yes. in the American who were lining up and spitting on those war protests and calling them hippies and and and, and draft archers and so forth. The mail on the other hand, the veterans, veterans who are opposed to it. Um, you stay there, still there, Carl? Oh, okay, yes, I'm still, yeah. Yeah, yeah. a lot well, a yeah, of it, some veterans are growing. I mean, when I got out, um, uh, even, even though I in Vietnam, Vietnam I was always was a, on the other coast. I joined the uh, Vietnam uh, era veteran and, and protested against the war myself, very much like I. And I mentioned this in the in my memoir as well. Uh, and I felt that same kind of here. I just spent five and a half years in active duty, uh, wearing the uniform, and now I'm I'm. We should get out of it. You know, what kind of divided loyalty is this? I mean, I, I thought about it a lot. And, and so did yeah, Mailer. I think the thing that bound me to him... Yes.
0: Hello? Did I... Answer? I... Yeah. yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then, yeah. I thought you blanked out for a second. Yeah, the thing that strikes me about Mailer, uh, while well, we're still on Armies of the Night, is... You know, there are different kinds of courage. There's military courage, a kind of bravery in battle and so on. Um, But there's a civil, there's a what I call civil courage. Mm -hmm. And what's always interested me is not everyone who has military courage has civil courage. It's an odd thing. You know, in other words, uh, the same man can pick up a gun uh, and do just incredible things that, you know, I'm sitting there thinking I've never been called on to do that. Could I do it? And then on the other hand, sometimes that same person becomes a politician and they have no civil courage. You know, they can't stand up yeah. for what they believe in, in the way they did when they picked up that rifle.
1: good distinction. I never thought of that. Mailer had that. I mean, he always yeah. to that. Condition. Yeah, he
0: does. He, yeah, he's seen it from from both directions. Now, since we have. Um, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, since we have some, I,
1: yeah, is, is it's the, spontaneity the spontaneity with which sit back and ponder, yeah. you know, I mean, he he decided very quickly, a a little little debate, but not much, that he was going to march, and then very quickly, without thinking about it much, Willie Morris on the street, Willie said, what do you write about this? He said, you know, I've been thinking about it. He said, okay, I'll do it. Decisions. He made decisions, decisions like that. He made snap decisions. You need some. I'll do it. You need somebody to do this, this. I'll do it. Salman Rushdie. I'll be there. Uh, he he was never hesitant uh, in in making his decision. Like the, he wanted to follow those inner promptings more than he did s- to sit down and make a decision. That wasn't Norman Mailer. Yeah, that's that's
0: uh, as a Mailer biographer myself. Uh, I I think of that, and I think of you know his phrase about having once been a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I, I think in order to get over that, he pretty much said this himself. Life was a test for him, you know, to go beyond uh, the comfort zone uh, is, and he did it in so many ways. is quite remarkable.
1: Yeah, yeah, he did uh, I, that. His his up. Very timid young man. man. He, he was, was a small. He was, you know, he was. He was not physically very large person. He was a small person as a boy, uh and he was. And uh, when he went in the service, and he ran up against the, the first six months he was in, he ran up against those those uh, soldiers from the 112th Cavalry, all Texans, and they'd just been some horrible battles in the Gilbert Islands, and they'd got shot up, and they lost jungle sores and email said you know i just get my mouth shut for my lip six months i was in that outfit <laughs> you know until yeah. he heard, you know he describes the- in a way. Uh, right. then when he got into con he did all those uh, 15 mile patrols there over a four month period in the early months of 45. yeah yeah
0: um i want to get into the issue but i don't want to do it right now I, you can sort of put it in the back of your mind negative response to Mailer uh, you know the the feminist response to Mailer and and how you handle that as a a critic but also as a biographer but before we get into that uh, fraught issue uh, since we have biographers listening to this podcast uh, one of your pieces in uh, Mailer's last days which I didn't get a chance to write about when I wrote my review of your book in the New York Sun is a piece called the Archivist Apprentice. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because that sort of deals with your training as a biographer.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, that, 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 was a, that was a piece that uh, I wrote long before, a couple of years before uh, I decided to put it. I did it in a way as a tribute to another biographer, Robert, uh, Robert Lucid. Who was a University of Pennsylvania professor and um, was uh, chosen by Mailer to be his authorized biographer and worked on a long time. But before he worked on biography, which he never finished, he died before he could. He is the one who really was responsible for creating Mailer's archive. I was you know, interested in all of, you know, I've been saving Mailer interviews and clips for quite a while, and not really knowing what I was doing. I was just, every time I, Mailer was in the news. People would send me things. They knew I was interested. And I clipped them myself, and I began to collect all this. I actually even began to correct a bibliography. I wrote a letter, I said, you know, I've read your, your bibliography of Mailer's writings. I think you, you might have forgotten a few things. And he was kind of a, you know, because he was a pretty careful guy. And that was the beginning of our friendship, and then we did. Mom, we began talk. talk wonderfully with uh, with John Aldridge in, in San Francisco. Francisco that I'll never forget when I was just a graduate student. And uh, pretty soon, Bob kind of had a as His junior project uh, to help him out lugging stuff from mailers various. Uh, to a an archival center in New York City, a storage. It was a big, giant 12-story building that had big storage lockers lockers in it, mainly for the wealth. Norman's mother, mother. Uh, rented a, a locker there, and that's where we put all the stuff. Uh, she was really the uh, archivist. She saved all her all stuff, not really understanding uh, it's all of its importance just because she was his mother. Uh, and then Bob took it over, and there was a... They are laying around in piles in, 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 in uh, you know, in in moldy piles in the bank. You know, There's <laughs> a lot of work, and I used to, I had a station wagon, um, um, you know, in the summer times when I was back from uh, University of Illinois, and i come back in and stuff, uh, and we began to be get very, very good friends. Good friends. Bob was the always guy was the guy that was going to write the biography, and I was just the guy in the by little, I began, I began to take over in that. Uh, I think the key moment was when I told Bob, I said, somebody's got to edit Norman's letters. I told Norman, they said, okay, well, you go, go ahead and do it. And I stopped had about three quarters of the way done when Bob Lucid died. Uh, mm. uh, uh, but we found out he, he, he hadn't really done anything on the biography seven or eight right. years. He got stuck at 1950 in Mailer's life. Uh, Just a a series of personal tragedies. His wife had cancer, cancer. and he himself began drinking, (coughs) and really, the drink took over. over. And he was unable to really function between. It really hurt hurt him, him. and he wanted to finish so badly, he could but he couldn't finish it. And so. Mailer, Mailer and his wife were saying, "When are we going to see the?" I'm, I'm working, working on it. I'm working on it. Well, he wasn't. And so when he died, uh, his colleagues at Penn sent me the man- It Was exactly where it was in 1998, 1998. and he Hadn't had done a of like- work on it. And so um, I picked it up from there. I I just said, "Write it." it his, 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 uh, uh, his words or his style or his approach? although it influenced me greatly. So as a tribute to Bob for all the work he did. He, is he did the first collection of critical essays. He did the first bibliographies. He created the archives. He wrote the first major up of the 1950 of the biography, and he spoke. He became Ayla's close friend. He spoke. You can imagine he was... Uh, uh, male is you know uh, in many ways mail is one of the his he's closest literary friend um, and I supplanted yeah. him in that role as archivist and close literary friend yeah
0: yeah it's 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 uh it's very organic it takes place over a long time uh, yes. before you you get to that moment uh, but I think that's that's sort of what makes the, uh, your book, the most recent, most comprehensive book for precisely that reason. You've got both, uh, certainly your friendship with Mailer, but you've, you've also got Lucid, you've got a sense of distance, you've got a sense of the archive. Uh, it's, it's not, your biography is not simply a, you know, essentially a memoir by a friend. It has a much more objective tone to it uh, than that.
1: Well, I'm glad so you like that. Um, Go ahead.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, let's talk a bit about. Um, I think some listeners at least may have had, may have, or have had uh, a negative uh, view of Mailer, and it often comes down to his his handling of, of women, both in his life and outside his life. I once gave um a book, I I once did a book signing at a bookstore in Michigan, um, right after my uh, biography of Mailer came out in 1991, uh, and I was actually visiting uh, uh, a Detroit suburb. I would moved to New York by then, and some of my old students, female students, showed up at the book signing, which I thought was terrific. Uh, I gave a little talk, uh, and then one of them came up to me and said, you know, I really you know, enjoyed your talk and glad I came, but I can't buy the book. Because mm-hmm. her feeling against Mailer was that hostile. Yes. Now some of that is evaporated, but some of that is still there. How do you deal with that?
1: Well, uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I felt it. Ever... Back. I remember when I was interviewing for my job in one thousand, nine hundred and seventy. Two in uh, called called it was called Sangamon State University. It's not part of the University And the first question I was asked was by a senior woman on the faculty during the job interview. She said, "What's all this about Norman?" Man-? Well, well you, know, you know, I said, I said "Well, well <laughs> you know, I just I was very kind of defensive." I said, "Yeah, I didn't I through all his credentials this and so forth." After uh, major events in which Norman clashed uh, with women. Uh, well, one was a publication event, and that was the publication of a book called *Prisoner of Sex*, and um, it was uh, a, a really at the same time as he uh, appeared at town hall in New York City uh, on a stage. Um, a, a Dialogue on Women's Liberation was the name of it. And it was Norman Mailer against all the women in the audience. Most of the men in the didn't say a word. A couple tried to. They were kind of shouted down or pushed down or told to shut up. Uh, this was Mailer's uh, uh, comments on women and uh, the primacy of the reproductive function in their lives was something that women did not want to hear that mela felt that that women had a, a link uh, to to the future because they that's where children were were gestated gestated and and that, that set them apart, made them, in his eyes, more important than anybody. Men were just simple simple creatures compared to women who were extremely complex. But women didn't see it that way. They wanted to escape that burden. They wanted to have independence. They wanted to have careers. They wanted to be on the same footing and paid the same amount for men. And so Mailer was immediately in Prisoner of Sex, which I still think is a wonderful book, uh, was tarred. And then he and they, that, that anger. In uh, again at, at that town meeting, which became a, a movie called Tom Bloody Hall. So Mailer had painted that position; he could never really back, back himself out of it. And then he got defensive, and he dug in, and he made a lot of stupid remarks about women's lib and the women's liberation movement, while being in favor of the national uh, all the national movements of women. Equal pay, equal jobs, the national—you uh, know—you uh, uh, know—the the attempt to pass a, an amendment to the Constitution, all of that he was in favor of. He was in favor of. Uh, Except his, his definition, definition, he saw that it was a profound. And did not want to hear it? And uh, understandably, yeah. because they've been they've been you know traduced and put down and and. been uh, lousy wages for so long. Uh, they they were sick of being second class. He kind of him. It was kind of a, a, a bad luck in a way. Not at that time. But once he was in, he got defensive and he fought back. Now later on, he changed and he began to talk about how much he admired women. To create I women, women characters, the character of Kittredge in goes Ghost is an attempt to to paint a portrait of a woman who is both beautiful, sexually desirable, and at the same time a brilliant intellect. I think it's a failed portrait. I think, I think it's one of the worst, worst portraits he did because it was written under kind of a dress that he was going to show that he. he, hmm. he and, and it was it, a failure. I he think he's that's got that's some great portraits of women. I think his portrait of Mary have um, said many occasions and written about, I think brilliantly, uh, was one of his great portraits of a woman. And I think it will remain. Yes.
0: I think that's right. And I think that he was maligned at the time and still maligned today um, by many for his yeah. his um, uh, book on, on Marilyn. Uh, and I think uh, people really miss the point on that. Yeah. Uh, yes. He's giving full credit to her as the so-called sex symbol, but he's also... You know, as you know, in the talk I gave on Mailer, I mean, when he comes down to it and uses that word, applies to her, Napoleonic, he changes the whole conception of her, mm-hmm. of who she was and what she did. And, and uh, the biographers like Lois Banner, who've come in, I had an uh, argument with Lois about this. She started trashing Mailer. And I said to Lois, I said, take a look at his book again and notice the way he treats her as an artist and the respect he has for her, and also his respect for her ambition. Yes. uh, And how world-shaking that ambition is. Uh, And mainly, women at the time were so angry at him that they they couldn't make that sort of distinction. Um, It it just, you know, but if you take a look at what he's doing there, it's it's really um, quite remarkable. we're in a time now where I think he's still going to suffer from this for a while. I just watched last night this new movie with Kate Blanchett called Tar. And there's this wonderful scene with a young student uh, who won't play Bach because of what he's learned about Bach's personal life. And she ends up saying to the student, um, well, look at you. Uh, is this what you want for your future? For someone to judge you simply by the color of your skin or certain opinions you have? What does that do with to the art that you're trying to create? Uh, and I think we have to we have to view writers like Norman Mailer in that context. You know, your biography and my biography certainly does not skim over. Um, some major flaws in this human being, but um, the form in which he couches uh, his, the issues, all kinds of issues um, is still so valuable uh, in the language which he, he crafts in which to do that. And you miss all that. If you come with that um, predisposition to, to judge art or to judge writers simply by the pin, the opinions you think you've held. One of my other subjects, William Faulkner, same thing. You know, he, he's he's a complex human being. And off the page, he could say some things which is certainly by today's standards seem racist. And yet the novels tell you something quite different.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You make that distinction very clear in your biography of Faulkner. Uh, uh, yes, I mean it's an old old question. I mean we are going through it now with Chaucer, uh, you know, who who lived, you know, six hundred uh, whatever it was, uh, along the fourteen hundreds, and uh, whether Sch- Chaucer did because there's an allegation that he might have possibly raped someone, but all the new evidence says no, he didn't, and some people have said that's, that's it. right. I'm not teaching Chaucer anymore. Well, you know, that's a, yeah. pretty, that's a pretty large uh, jump to make. Um, I've talked to many They're women who have complained to me about The Prisoner of Sex. They said, he wrote that book. I said, well, did you ever read They said, well, no, I actually haven't read it. And that is, you know, and then I know some women who actually, at my prompting, have read it and said, well, you know, it's a little more complex than it's, been, it's made out made out to be. It's not a one-sided. Yeah. It's it's not a diatribe against women at all. It's a it's an open-minded exploration of how are, how the sexuality of males and females have what what is the effect of them in defining who they are as human beings, and uh, you know if you look at it from that point of view, um, <laughs> uh, and and see how how tentative some of his ideas are. Uh, uh, you, you get a, a much, pretty, but it's just been tarred to the point that a lot of women will never read it. And if his name is mentioned, they leave the room. Yeah, well, if, if I
0: were still teaching, and I'm retired now, but if I were still teaching, what I would do with The Prisoner of Sex is I would juxtapose it with certain passages in Rebecca West's Black Lamb and Gray Falcon when she visits uh, Yugoslavia, And she talks about the, the traditional role of women and why mm-hmm. that role is has been defined by history that way, and what that does to women, and she doesn't mean in, in terms just of women's suffering, but also the strength that women gather from particularly that kind of traditional role. She's not endorsing it, but she's simply trying to look at it. Why is it this way? And I think Mailer, in a way, was, was trying to do that in The Prisoner of Sex. I also have to say, I think he was also having some fun.
1: That's right. He was. Fun. And he but said women don't know. notice it, that, I, that I'm winking here and there. That, you know, they can't. They yeah. it's so deadly serious about things. And I, which I. You know, I think there's a good chance, uh, Carl, that the Library of America is going to uh, publish another volume of Mailer on the 70s. I've been talking about. I think three speak. volumes now. Uh, I just uh, did. Um, uh, and I think the prisoner sex is going to be involved in there. If, if I have what I would like to see, and I don't know if this is going to happen, but uh, uh, the 70s that included, included. Uh, the prisoner's uh, fight. Oh, yeah, that'd
0: be terrific. The fight, I, I every chance I get, I have to say that is a great book.
1: It is a great book. Uh, a few years ago, Larry you know, you, asked me to, um, it was one of the books I did for Toshin. They wanted to do a big picture book, and they did a big picture <clears> book <throat> of the fight, and uh, they wanted me to cut it. And I said, you know, it's pretty hard. Yeah. I, it's, yeah. it's very really I finally took out a few passages here and there just to just... Toshen. Uh, cause he, he didn't really believe in text at all. Text was something that goes along with photos. But Larry convinced him that text was important. <laughs> you know, he published four books by Mailer, um, and, you know, with, with a little bit of trimming here. <clears throat> and I know it was, I found it to cut much out of that book. That book. Um, it's, it's so tightly written. It's not, And yet Mailer, when it came out, he was saying, well, this is just something I tossed off. The first time I was in the room with Norman Mailer and Bob Lucid together, I walked in and Mailer, as I was walking, was saying, okay, I've written a minor book. The fight is a minor book. Let me get, back. <laughs> you know, as a trend. Well, you know, minor work and maybe the, the greatest, greatest book ever, ever written about price fighting. And one. Larry McMurtry said it was the sport anywhere.
0: Well, you know, it, it, you know, the, the amount of time you spend on a book, doesn't necessarily equate with how good it is you know Faulkner did As I Lay Dying in a little bit more than six weeks he took 10 years to do a fable and uh I don't think anyone would say that a fable is a better book than As I Lay Dying because he wrote it in six weeks and you might say tossed it off
1: (laughs) well you know one of my one of my uh my and uh, you know, speaking directly to what you just said, is if you look at the books that he wrote at a white heat, and I I mean fast, I mean, he wrote The Naked and the Dead yeah. in six weeks. He did the same thing about two months to write Miami and the Siege of Chicago, which is almost as good. A Fire on the Moon was written in a very short period of time. Was, um, the Naked and the Dead. The Naked and the Dead were both written at an extremely rapid rate. I mean, they both would, Mailer wrote the executioner's song, did the research, did the travel, did the interviews, did everything, in 18 months. The Naked and the Dead took 15 months, whereas the book is on ancient well, they have virtues, especially Harlot's Ghost. But ten, years ten years on. on eight, eight years on mm-hmm. Ghost*, and ten on uh, *Ancient Evenings*. They're not *Ancient Evenings* is not as good a book as some of his other novels, and certainly it's not fiction.
0: Well, the interesting thing about *Ancient Evenings* is I'd almost call it Mailer's fable, because of yes. the use of the passive voice in both those books. It's very interesting. There's a kind of grandeur to the use of the the passive voice, mm-hmm. and it's something that those two writers didn't didn't use that much in other other works. And I see what they're getting at, and yet for contemporary readers, it's it's very difficult to absorb.
1: Yes, that's a very good point. Comparing it to the fable, or to a fable, but yeah, know, yeah. They're, they're... And the
0: other thing I I have to have to say, you you know, you began early on in this podcast about you know what's going to last on Mailer and how the how the nonfiction may, may overshadow the novels. As that happens, if it happens, one of the things I want to point out to future critics about the fight is when you get to that scene, when uh, Muhammad Ali knocks out George Frazier uh, and Mailer oh, says- yeah, oh, George about, Sorry, George Foreman, not Frazier. George Foreman, thank you. Um, when, when Mailer gets to that section, he describes foreman as coming down in sections Mm -hmm. uh it's so grand it's such a wonderful set piece if you look at what happens in faulkner's the bear right i'm not sure that you would get what happens in the fight if you didn't have faulkner's the bear so what's the point of saying the fight is a minor book, or it's not a literary book. Of course, it's
1: literature. Yes, absolutely. Know what you mean? That's, he's a six foot six. six yeah, yeah. So to, 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 He's got so- metaphors in the you know that <laughs> describing that round. The metaphors are just wonderful. It's it's such a, a great yeah. pileup of similes that that are magnificent. i never that's one of the. High of course, he wrote that book in, in a very, very rapid, rapid way as well. Um, you know, yeah, he yeah, very quickly. All many of his yeah. great at a high speed. They were written without with a lot of reflection. He was writing out of instinct and talent and genius. And, uh, yeah, the same thing can be said as well. The long books aren't necessarily yeah. the, the... Because the it's not the same impulse. It's almost like some of the longer books were done out of a sense of duty. And, uh, you know... It was written in a way for Mailer to break out of the nonfiction mode. It was his attempt to break out of it. He just... You know, if you count... Uh, not the execution song Books from 1968 to 1979 that are all nonfiction. And said, look, I've been defining my. Get my back novel. to a novel, and so really he began it. You know, in around 1970 he started doing research for Ancient Evenings. It didn't come. later, later. Um, uh, but he, he was, was he was writing it. And he he did, did, it did it by an act of will. He wanted to show he was in. Yeah, since then, yet he He had uh, uh, a great eye for so many wonderful scenes in that book. I'm not saying it's a it's a disaster, Uh, but overall the conception of it, uh, I think he wrote it under a a kind of a self imposed uh, edict that he was going to show that he was a great novelist like Thomas Mann. That was one. models you know Monk Monk could write a book like uh you know um, uh what's the name of it one about the takes place in magic mountain no, the magic mountain yeah that that was one of his books that he was up to they folded, folded out all, out all out kinds of digressive de- de- plots it de- talked about men oh, philosophy and, and the nature and all of those things Melo wanted to write about he wanted to show he could do that that he like uh, like Tolstoy, Tolstoy. Like Thomas, who could write, write these long long, long, long books that were interesting, largely because of yeah, yeah, very much so.
0: So, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Well, or you want to say?
1: Uh, yeah, I guess one of the things I wanted to say is the uh, how this book came together. Uh, it was really kind sure. of. two pieces it. and I don't know year it could be a book uh, uh, there, there any coherence. Um, uh, I may mean, have achieved, achieved it so, and so. It can be, be read as a, as a continuous narrative with digressions in it, and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, a lot of that that, and in. really the thing, kind uh, of the pivot of the whole book uh, is I father and my, my father's, father's relationship father, to his father, which which I was fortunate just lucky enough to be the person in the family to discover what happened to this my grandfather Lennon who disappeared in the night in the in the early 1930s leaving a wife and six children at home and changed the course mm. of those children and my grandmother and me. And they uh, being very Irish and very proud never mentioned his name, wouldn't talk about it. And I was lucky enough to run into someone who knew my grandfather. And also, there was a postcard that, that came to light that somebody had that had his picture on it. And I believe it's the only photograph of him that exists. And, you know, there were two or three clues like that that enabled me to finally find And my grandmother Lennon, who had not seen him for, you know, 20 years, um, collected Social Security for the next 40 years. He was dead. And so it was kind of a triumph for mm. her. Finally, he was brought wow. out. Of the but, you know, when somebody, divorce was not a word people used or abandonment. He abandoned the family. And my father was sent as a 16-year-old to meet with him and say, we don't want to see you anymore. You've left us alone for years. You've been, uh, he's a traveling, he was a traveling guy who worked for, uh, A&P supermarkets, he was, he was setting them up. He used to set them up and travel around the country. So he wouldn't come home. And then he just stopped coming. And the last visit was my father, I think in 33, telling him not to come. And that was a climactic event in my family's history. And uh, I think it really shaped my father who he was, and it might have had a great influence on why he became an alcoholic. Uh huh. Yeah. So that story is in there. And uh, it's kind of, in attempt, the last two essays—one on Mailer, one on my father an attempt to pull all those threads together in the the thirty odd pieces that are in the book. I'm glad
0: you mentioned that. You know, Paul, one uh, biographer, <clears throat> Paul Murray Kendall, in *The Art of Biography*, often, uh, well, he says in, in the in his book, uh, every biography is also an autobiography. Yes, it's inescapable that the figures we are interested in we're interested in for autobiographical as well as biographical reasons.
1: Well, you know, when I, I, I'm sure you noticed that when I wrote my biography of Mailer at a certain point, I realized that I was not just a biographer, but I was <clears throat> an actor in some of the events of his life. Yeah. And I really had to put myself in. If I didn't, it was, it was kind of silly not to put myself in. Uh, because I was, you know, involved in editing some of his books and setting up his archive of uh, various things I was involved with that I really needed to mention myself. And I didn't know how to do it. And I finally just took a page out of Mela's book and described myself as uh, Michael Lennon, a young professor uh, teaching at the uh, teaching in the uh, University of Illinois. Yeah. And uh, I introduced myself and I make, you know, a couple of cameo appearances and it was a painful thing to do. I didn't really want to do it, but I felt I had to. And it was not unfair to do it. And that, in a way, made me real. Appeal. A lot of people said, well, when are you going to talk about how you met Mailer? How did you <laughs> become friendly with Mailer? What's this about his archive? What's the relationship to Lucid? They'd hear me reference all this. So finally, that, that was one of the, that, the kind, kind of uh, create this book called Mailer's Last Days. Book.
0: Well, very good. Well, uh, carry on. (laughs) Sure. I know. I know there are all kinds of mailer projects afoot. We could spend another podcast on all the things that uh, are uh, still in the works. Um, So, to be continued, as Mailer says in Harlot's Ghost.
1: To be continued. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Very good, Carl, and I wish you best, and uh, I know you've got, I know your your wife is having some health issues, and yes. I, I'm thinking of you, and uh, Donna sends her regards. She said, remind Carl that we we are living right next to Conestoga Avenue in Bryn Mawr, <laughs> Okay, yeah,
0: yeah, not that far from me. Okay, thanks a lot, Mike, and
1: I'll be posting this, and you can post it to whoever you like. Would you tell me how to do that? I mean, you'll send me a link? I'll send you a link, yeah. All right, terrific. I will post it. Thanks again, Carl.
0: Thanks, Mike.
1: Okay, bye-bye.